it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello listeners, I'm your speaker Casey, and welcome to this week's episode of The Cult Vault. Synonym. Described in the Free Dictionary as a method of psychotherapy for treating drug addicts, originally practised in the drug rehabilitation centres of the Synanon organisation. Today we are going to go back in time to the 1950s in California, USA, where a new way of life was beginning to flourish. Charles E. Dederick Sr., an ex-raging alcoholic, had left Alcoholics Anonymous behind in order to start his own community of addicts seeking rehabilitation. No one knew, not even Charles, what journey would await the movement known as Synanon. Follow this story as we weave its timeline from the 50s all the way to the millennium, capturing every horrible twist and turn that Dederick had to offer. Before we begin, a small piece of business. For those interested, there will be a two-part special being released on my Patreon this month covering the Armshin Rikyo cult, a group who released deadly sarin gas on the subway stations of Tokyo, led by leader Shoko Asahara. This month will mark the two-year anniversary since his execution. To listen to this episode, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash the cult fault. One more thing. I just wanted to give a familiar announcement. This episode comes with a trigger warning. It includes themes of abuse, violence, abortion and attempted murder. Most of my source material has come from paulmorantz.com. Paul Morantz is an American attorney and a notable character in this story. Other websites include cabinetmagazine.com and lamagazine.com. I will include all of the references in the show notes. With those bits covered... Let me take you to Ohio in 1913, where little baby Charles Dederick was born to a loving father and mother. His mother was an accomplished pianist who raised her children Roman Catholic. Nicknamed Chuck, Charles would tragically lose his alcoholic father at the tender age of four. His mother would then raise Chuck as the man of the house. When Chuck reached the age of eight, his little brother contracted influenza This pandemic would infect around 28% of the population. Roughly 105 million Americans were infected between February 1918 and April 1920. Between 500,000 and 850,000 of those people died from the flu. 
worldwide deaths would reach anywhere from 17 million to 50 million deaths. Tragedy would strike again when his little brother would sadly die from the flu, becoming infected at the very back end of the pandemic. Chuck lost his brother and as the man of the house felt responsible and guilty, through his grief, he grew closer to his mother until he reached the age of 12. It was during this year that his mother remarried and Chuck was absolutely heartbroken and completely devastated. He went on an alcohol fueled rage at only 12 years old and continued heavily drinking from this day. He gave up on his studies and failed to reach a standard in high school enough to pass his examinations, so he left the school of Notre Dame, or Notre Dame as Americans say, and went to work for the Mellon family. The Mellon family, an extremely influential and wealthy family from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had started and owned many business ventures, including Mellon Bank. Chuck worked specifically for Gulf Oil, owned by the Mellon family. But Chuck wouldn't last in this job or even in his first marriage. Again, this came down to his drinking. Thanks to the 1928 discovery of penicillin by Scottish researcher Sir Alex Fleming, Chuck, in the 1940s, aged just 20, would be saved by medicine after developing the deadly infection meningitis, an infection of the protective membranes that surround the brain and spinal cord. Unfortunately, from this bout of meningitis, Chuck would develop a droopy left eye and a facial tick. After losing touch with his children, Chuck would move to Santa Monica, California. He got a job at Hughes Tools. Hughes Tool Company was an American manufacturer of drill bits, founded in 1908. It was merged into Baker Hughes Incorporated in 1918. Chuck would remarry and start life fresh. Unfortunately, though, his drinking would again cause him to lose these things a second time. And after being found passed out on the kitchen floor, Chuck was steered into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, also known as AA. Wikipedia would describe AA as Alcoholics Anonymous is an international mutual aid fellowship with the stated purpose of enabling its members to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. AA is a non-professional, self-supporting and apolitical organisation. Its only member's requirement is a desire to stop drinking. It was founded by Bob Smith in 1936 in Akron, Ohio in the US. Upon being whisked into his first AA meeting, Chuck finally felt like he had found a place that he belonged. He would attend his first meeting of the day and talk the entire time unless somebody would stop him. A few admirers through these meetings and at the end of one meeting, he would go across town and find another meeting and repeat the same process of talking and gaining admiration of fellow AA members. He would do this all night long, living on his $35 a month unemployment check and the charity of others. After a bout of locking himself away, reading Emerson's book on self-reliance, Chuck had decided to devote all of his time to helping those suffering with alcohol addiction he would invite AA members back to where he was staying for soup, coffee and cigarettes. People were fascinated when Chuck spoke in his raspy and coarse tones and together they began to make positive changes in their addictive behaviour. Some AA groups and members were then approached and asked if they would like the opportunity to participate in an LSD drug experiment. 
Doctors and researchers thought that these people would be perfect participants as they already had given themselves over to a higher power by submitting to the AA fully and quitting alcohol. The University of California were heading the experiment, looking to see the therapeutic results of using this new wonder drug. Chuck took part in this experiment, and while others experienced euphoria and hallucinations of music and colour, Chuck didn't experience this at all. In fact, he stated that all he experienced was an overwhelming experience of omnipotence and omniscience. The experiment was led by Dr Keith Dittman, and Chuck explained his experience as a cathartic breakthrough. His speeches at his home and during his AA meetings changed from spiritual and religious to including themes of psychology and philosophy, which sounds remarkably like the earlier years of Jim Jones. Dr Keith Dittman, leader of the LSD experiment, was born 18th of April 1921 in Spokane, Washington. He started his career as an associate professor of psychiatry and eventually headed the department's research clinic. In the 1960s, he served as a researcher for the University of California's Brain Mapping Institute, and here is where he would carry out these LSD experiments. Dittman died on July 19th, aged 80, from heart complications, after dedicating a lifetime to research. One notable thing about Dittman in terms of this podcast is how he testified during the Charles Manson trials. An article on New York Times website reads Los Angeles, March 3rd. A psychiatrist who pioneered research into hallucinogenic drugs testified today that Charles M. Manson could have persuaded Leslie Van Houten, a chronic user of LSD, to commit murder. Dr. Keith Dittman, who directed a research project at the University of California, Los Angeles, testified in the penalty phase of the Tate-LaBianca murder trial. He was the first expert on the drug called to the stand over the angry objections of Miss Van Houten, who sat murmuring at the defence table. In 1958, Chuck continued to grow a fan base within his AA meetings and at his home. He realised that they would need more space, so he gathered his flock and for $100 a month he rented a storefront on Venice Beach in the Ocean Park area. Written on the front of the shop, in big words, they painted... The Tender Loving Care Club, which would be the original name of Synanon. Within the TLC group, there were some rules. One of them was no alcohol, but their most absolute law? Absolutely no violence whatsoever. During these meetings, Synanon's most famous event occurred. Members started participating in a thing called The Game. The game was where everyone would sit around in semicircles of chairs and addicts, one at a time, would be attacked verbally on their attitude, appearance, behaviour, beliefs. If the person being verbally abused tried to defend themselves, the entire group would begin hurling insults at that person. Eventually, the onslaught would end and it would then be somebody else's turn. Chuck would then say, quote, Talk dirty, live clean. During the game, people were allowed to say anything, whether it was true or false. Ex-members would later talk about their experiences within Synanon and the game. One person said, no matter how loud you scream, they can scream louder. The group survived on begging by food trucks, from sex workers and donations. It was reported that to wash, there was a hose connected outside that ran into the shop through an open window. One day, a young man named Whiter Walker entered the TLC club. He was fresh out of prison and a heroin addict. 
Some members who had followed Chuck from AA protested about having a drug addict in the group. Chuck then announced to his followers that he would rather surround himself with, quote, dope fiends, and demanded that those suffering from alcohol addiction can leave and return to the AA, as there was support available for drunks, but not for drug addicts. A new rule was added to the TLC club. No alcohol. Absolutely no violence. And now, no drugs. At one point, during a game, a participant would slur the word symposium and seminar. Chuck jumped up and said, did you just say synonym? And so the name was born. Some sources have also said that it was the words symposium and anonymous that were slurred. Chuck would also be known as the person who coined the term this is the first day of the rest of your life to new synonym members. Things carried on with Chuck gaining a following of dope fiends. They played the game three times a week, which often lasted hours at a time, and were offered coffee and cigarettes. Participants were also offered classes on public speaking, art and drama to keep people interested and entertained. They also had a few jazz musicians in their ranks that ended up forming a band named Sounds of Synanon, with their first track being called C.E.D. after Charles E. Dederick. Soon the group would move to the old soon the group would move to an old National Guard building on Santa Monica Beach. At this time, newly appointed Governor Nelson Rockefeller addressed the public, stating that fifty percent of all crimes in his state could be linked back to drugs. Because of this, the neighbours of the TLC club began protesting heavily, complaining that having dope fiends from all over the US reaping havoc on the streets of Santa Monica was not good for business. Chuck was found breaking several zoning violations, meaning that they were operating a recovery centre in a residential zone without medical licences, paperwork or permission. He was told he could either up and leave and take his group elsewhere or go to jail. Chuck decided that he wouldn't flee and spent time in jail. This would be the first time Synanon would gain positive public traction. People heard and celebrated Chuck, calling him a martyr, Governor Edmund Brown Sr. signed a Save Synanon bill, giving Synanon an exemption to health licensing. The medical board was due to establish rules for Synanon to work within, now that they no longer needed a licence, but this never happened. Another notable thing about this movement during this time was how interracial Synanon was. Chuck married a woman named Betty who was an ex-drug addict, an ex-prostitute and also African-American. A white man marrying a person of colour in the 50s or 60s was not common during this time. Money began flooding in from the rich and famous. Synanon received donations from people such as Robert Wagner, Leonard Nimoy and Ben Gazzara. These people would also come along and join in the occasional game with ex-addicts and ex-sex workers. Life magazine would also go on to do a 14-page photo spread with a quote from a congressman saying, Miracle on the beach. Columbia Pictures released a film called Synanon, directed by Richard Quine. The film made $1 million at box office. Actors involved included Stella Stevens and Eartha Kitt. There's a synopsis of the film on internetmoviedatabase.com saying, This film chronicles the goings-on at Synanon House, a rehabilitation centre for people with all kinds of addictions. It also looks at Chuck Dederick, a recovering alcoholic who founded and runs Synanon House. It was during 1962 that two men, 
one a furniture store owner from Palm Springs named Mel Wasserman, and the other a drug addict from Brooklyn named Bill Lane, became Synanon members, and over time they gained the attention of Chuck and rose to positions of leadership in the organisation. Wasserman even held Synanon meetings and games in his Palm Springs home. These two names would later become very famous in the world of the troubled teens industry that we will go into in a few episodes' time. In 1964, with all of its rapid growth, many were now aware of this alternative community where people were attracted to truth-telling sessions. Kicking off Phase 2 of Synanon, Chuck began building his own city in Marin County. Professionals and non-addicts, also nicknamed Squares, were invited to join and live among the dope fiends if they brought assets and skills along with them. Those who lived at Synanon but didn't pay rent had to work harder in order to be able to stay. This included cooking, cleaning, DIY and working amongst Synanon's various enterprises. Squares, or people who were not ex-addicts but wanted to live this lifestyle within the community, had to pay a fee to live at Synanon. Anyone new at this stage who came to live among the Synanon people were forced to play the game and confess everything. No secrets were allowed. In 1967, Chuck declared that Synanon was not successful and that most people who graduated the programme and reintegrated with society ended up falling off the wagon and using drugs again. He said full recovery wasn't happening, and so he ended the tradition of graduation in 1969 and informed people that they could just live here forever and together they would build a utopian world based on Chuck's vision. By this time... Mel Wasserman and Bill Lane had been involved with Synanon for five years. In 1967, Mel and Bill started noticing Dederick change. His vision of Synanon amidst his massive success had undergone a seismic shift. Around this time, Synanon pressured old club members to leave, and Mel and Bill were pushed out, along with the majority of the old guard. Allowing the imposition of more radical methods and ideas, Despite having been pushed out of the inner circle, Mal and Bill could see the massive income potential that the Synanon model had. They got together and they started the Charles E. Dederick University, what we know today as SEDU, the cult that we will be looking into this month. This would be the start of abusive and aggressive programmes for troubled teens that were and are advertised as safe rehabilitation. Out of that very same living room that he had hosted the game so many times before, Mel would sell his furniture business and, along with some investment assistance, bought the Running Springs Lodge, built and formerly owned by Walter Houston, a titan of Hollywood at the time. Mel and Bill built a scholastic model of Synanon for adolescents. But for now, let's get back to Synanon. At this stage, Synanon had developed various different business strategies that included selling promotional merchandise with the Synanon name on the front, t-shirts, pens, mugs and other memorabilia. Other enterprises included running gas stations, pottery making, owning apartment buildings, amongst other things. Chuck bought and sold real estate and no one was ever paid wages and Synanon never paid any tax. Eventually, the merchandise alone would generate $10 million in yearly revenue. Salesmen of Synanon would say, buy from Synanon, save a life, and eventually at one stage, 
Synanon would become the second biggest advertising business in selling merchandise in America for a short while. Synanon eventually purchased Club Casa del Mar, which was a beachside hotel in 1926. It also served as a military headquarters in World War II. The building was used as a centre for drug treatment and head of business operations. New rules began being implemented where members of Synanon had to ask permission from elders of Synanon to be able to date certain people and they were told that they had to follow a celibate courting ritual. Rooms would also be raided randomly with personal items and contraband being confiscated. Chuck implemented a 24-hour workday where half of Synanon would work in the day and half would work in the night. Also, the public began getting frustrated, claiming that the city owned the beachfront, not Synanon. Police officers and bulldozers marched down the beachfront, knocking down cabanas and paved courts with paddy wagons awaiting any protesters from Synanon. Chuck then addressed the news, saying that the city had fallen into the hands of mad dogs and that Synanon would sue them all. Eventually, Santa Monica would surrender and this rendered Synanon untouchable once again. With the zoning laws out of the window for Synanon and donations flooding in from the news headlines, Synanon became Santa Monica's largest landowner. Synanon had acquired a large industrial building in Oakland, a residential facility where people were invited to come and play the game, and California even donated a block-long building in San Francisco. Babies born would be taken from their parents and raised communally in a place called the Hatchery, Mothers who wanted to see their kids too often were labelled as headsuckers and shamed during the games. Soon, even bigger changes came to Synanon. Chuck ordered that all contact with the outside world was forbidden, and that Chuck was there to lead Synanon and the world into the 21st century. He was quoted as saying, anything less than changing the world is Mickey Mouse. Chuck began experimenting with environmental manipulations, he thought back to the awakening that he had had during his time within the LSD experiment and sought to recreate this, but to do so he would need non-dope-fiend participants. Chuck's main aims of this experiment were to create group psychotherapy, coercive persuasion, mysticism and spiritual revival. At 7pm on Fridays, around 50 people of all ages, known as trippers, would gather outside of the Del Mar building of Synanon to participate in what Chuck coined the trip. People dressed in long white robes with yellow scarves would greet the trippers and herd them through a candlelit and incense-burning corridor until they reached an army barracks-styled locker room with army beds neatly dressed and name cards placed on each bunk. Chuck was quoted as saying, at the end of this rainbow there will be a pot of gold. Through dissipation or long hours of activity without sleep, we hope to bring about in you a conscious state of inebriation. We want to get you loaded without acid. Upon reaching the locker room, the trippers were stripped, given a set of their own robes and asked to hand in all watches because time no longer mattered, as well as jewellery and makeup, a symbolic stripping of one's previous self and past life, transitioning forward to a new identity. After taking the LSD, trippers were encouraged to participate in the game. They experienced universal enthusiasm as well as collective shame and group defeat. Dope fiends who were running the programme would sit in comfy green armchairs at the head of the room while the trippers sat around in a semicircle 
listening to the dope fiend's personal stories of drugs, rape, crime, beatings and tragedy. Squares who led these sessions would confess and describe their despair prior to finding Synanon. The lack of sleep left participants disorientated whilst tripping from the LSD. The aides within the workshop, working for the dope fiends or the squares in charge, would collect homework, making notes of confessions made by trippers during the game. This would then be fed back to other conductors, who could use it to ambush the participants as though every Synanon member knew everyone's deepest, darkest secrets. These ambushes were used as fuel to get trippers to confess even deeper sins. Each tripper kept a log during their time, writing down feelings or admissions. These documents were used against the tripper. Taking these admissions to the participants' spouses who wouldn't submit to Synanon, as leverage to coerce them into joining the movement. There was such a thing at 3am called the witching hour, where a Ouija board would be operated by two ladies dressed in black and white robes who claimed to be witches. The witches would spell out messages from the underworld or the other side. The board would tell participants to adopt Synanon as their only family, leave their past lives behind, or go to the fifth circle of Dante's hell where tormented souls, terrorised and torn, awaited them. Eventually, because of this, one tripper would break down and begin crying, and then all the participants gathered around to embrace that person. It was a moment of euphoria and love and connectedness. Resistors were told that this was their last chance to submit to Synanon. The hallucinating and fighting of sleep meant that defences were weakened, and eventually, anyone left unbroken began asking for forgiveness collapsing into the fetal position. Some laughed, some howled, some cried for their mothers, and at the end of the experience, everybody embraced. At 8am on the Monday, the trippers left the trip room, hand in hand. They emerged towards a ballroom playing band music and found themselves surrounded by hundreds of people clapping, cheering and celebrating the trippers. Each participant had been awake for roughly 65 hours or more. Still, they stood hugging and clapping and embracing each other. During this celebration, people participated in a Synanon dance called a hoopala, and before Synanon had a chance to appreciate its ever-growing population, the community now consisted of teachers, lawyers, doctors, police and politicians. These new allegiances would assist in the profits of Synanon with Lifestylers Business, helping Synanon gain half a million dollars after the second year of the trip. This is where we enter Phase 3 of Synanon from the 1970s onwards. By 1972, Synanon had 1,700 live-in residents either working for keep or paying to stay. One lady had even given a $1 million donation, with another man signing over control of his mortgage company in 1972. When the San Francisco Examiner published a series of political and critical articles about Synanon, Chuck sued them. He had a fleet of legal staff in 1972, around 48 in total, with lawyers who would come straight from Harvard. Eventually, Hearst newspapers settled out of court and paid Synanon a hefty $2.6 million. In 1973, during a session of the game that Chuck was involved in, one woman was making Chuck the subject of her berating. She was relentless, going at him over and over, and when she wouldn't stop with her insults and onslaught, he got up and poured a can of root beer over her head. 
the rest of the room erupted in delight at this comical scene. But with this action, Synanon would change dramatically. This signified to all people that violence was now allowed. The one absolute law of Synanon no longer applied. In the 1970s, parents, courts and juvenile officers started sending juveniles, troubled teens and troubled children to Synanon. Part of the reasoning for Chuck agreeing to this was to keep the tax-exempt status that Cinnamon had achieved. When Chuck realised that the young ones couldn't be manipulated or controlled in the same way that adults could, he formed what he called a punk squad. The punk squad were ordered to keep the young ones under control. This eventually led to them being slapped in the face, being pushed down onto the ground or forced to partake in the game. Some children as young as four were recorded as being gamed. The punk squad were also sent to deal with what Chuck called splitties, the synonym word for quitters, as well as those being accused of being thieves, spies and enemies of synonym. Chuck would be told by doctors that in order to tackle ongoing health conditions, he would need to cut back on refined sugar and grains, and so everyone began eating healthy as an act of solidarity. He was instructed to lose weight, and so everyone would exercise as a sign of solidarity. When he was told to stop smoking, he ordered a synonym-wide ban on smoking, despite being supported by a cigarette brand who had donated thousands of cartons of cigarettes to Synanon. 150 people would quit on the spot. Smoking had been the one crutch of addictive material that Synanon members had endless access to. When Chuck banned this, many thought it was a step too far. Chuck introduced, innovatively and ahead of its time in terms of the best practice for recovering addicts, the use of aerobics, running, diets and non-smoking to squeeze out what he called the bad fruit, essentially people who were non-conformers to the synonym rules and lifestyle. In the mid-70s, during a particularly heated session of the game, two people stood in the circle, one person insulting the other. They told that person that, as punishment, they should have to shave their head, and so the person did. Slowly, more and more people were instructed to shave their heads for penance during the game. Haircuts became punishment for various rule-breaking inside Synanon, including smuggling in contraband. It was also used to haze newcomers. Eventually, during a session of the game that Chuck was playing in, someone ordered that he cut his hair, and so he did. Only when this happened... Everyone within Synanon, as a sign of solidarity, also shaved their heads, becoming one of the things that Synanon would be most recognisable and famous for. Not long after this, men and women alike donned shaved heads, but men also wore overalls or dungarees, sparing some of the adversaries of Synanon to describe this as a militant and aggressive look. Hundreds of Synanon members with their bald heads would appear in George Lucas's sci-fi dystopian called THX 1138, because of their bald heads. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Chuck would go on to purchase properties in remote California in an area called Tamales Bay in Marin County and also purchased properties in Badger County. Synanon created unauthorised, unpermitted structures such as a general waste dump and an airstrip. By 1976, Synanon would have $22 million in assets, $8 million in revenue, 5,500 acres of property, 200 cars, 400 motorbikes, 62 freight trucks, 12 aeroplanes, 20 boats, $1 million in the stock market and a private jet. In 1974, Synanon had been treating anyone and everyone. Because of this infraction, they had broken the rules which made their tax-exempt status become null and void. And so a hefty bill was on its way to Synanon as well as an investigation into their finances. When this happened, Chuck announced that Synanon was a religion and the religious organisation was called Church of Synanon. There was a question asked at this time, which was left unanswered. It was, who will be God? In 1977, American attorney and the person whose timeline and information we are referencing, Paul Morantz, brings to the attention of the health department the fact that Synanon are treating various medical conditions in their unauthorised medical clinic. Chuck was taking in patients with medical needs outside of drug addiction without a licence to treat them. Chuck began becoming agitated with the time and resources spent on pregnant women and the babies they birthed. He said that just because something has been practised for millions of years, it doesn't make it sacred. He said, quote, as far as I'm aware, giving birth is no different to squeezing out a football. He ordered all of the men to have vasectomies and all of the pregnant women to have abortions. One lady who agreed to this was four months pregnant at the time. These procedures for both men and women were carried out by Synanon doctors. Notably though, Chuck himself did not receive a vasectomy. Chuck moved himself and his wife to a remote estate called The Home Place in Badger County. He claimed he needed to be away from dope fiends. During his limited time within the Synanon community, he could be found sitting on a throne wearing robes, The home place boasted hot tubs and horse stables, whereas the rest of Synanon lived half a mile away in army barrack-style accommodation. In 1977, Chuck's wife Betty died. Chuck was absolutely heartbroken and distraught. He began using a Ouija board that he concluded had told him to remarry. That Betty had contacted him and said that it's okay so he sent application forms out to volunteers to offer themselves as Chuck's new bride. Out of all of Synanon, six women stepped forward as volunteers, 
Upon choosing his new 31-year-old wife, Ginny, Chuck announced that he would save everyone else from the pain and loss of death by demanding that all members of Synanon divorce and take up new partners, and after three years, divorce again, and so on. The new partners for everyone in Synanon would be picked by Chuck. Within days, 230 couples had filed for divorce. Among these people would be a woman, married to a man named Phil Ritter. Phil worked for Synanon at an automotive garage doing car repair work for $50 a month during his time at Synanon. But the scary and heartbreaking thing about the divorce from his wife was that they had a child within Synanon. He didn't want the divorce, but eventually he would leave Synanon and seek out professional help in trying to get his child and wife back from this cult. Chuck's control and brainwashing of people would begin to reach new heights when he implemented something called The Wire, a low-frequency broadcasting system that played locally 24 hours a day. It would include raspy rants from Chuck speaking about the enemy and targeting enemies. It would also sometimes include live sessions of the game or even recorded ones from previous sessions. Chuck started a group called the Imperial Marines in depot flats in the Badger Mountains. The Imperial Marines were Synanon's law enforcement and along with the punk squad, they would comb the streets of Synanon's community at night and scout the surrounding areas to ensure no trespassers were found. People that were found to be trespassing on Synanon property were often beaten viciously on the spot or taken to a basement to be beaten under the guidance of Dr Douglas Robson. Some were often accused of being spies or thieves. During its active period, the Imperial Marines were estimated to have attacked over 40 people, including a couple of colour who used the car park along the beach, and also a neighbouring rancher who was severely beaten. Also in 1977, Chuck was getting a yearly salary of $100,000, which is around $400,000 in today's money. He also took half a million dollars in pre-retirement bonus money. Another notable thing about Dr Robson is that his wife allegedly left a card with Paul Morantz's wife's neighbour, a small threat letting Paul know that Synanon knew where he and his family lived. Dr Robson would eventually flee to avoid prison after testimonies of abuse came forward. An underground railroad was started by another neighbouring rancher called Alvin Gambanini. Alvin noticed a number of young people attempting to cross his property. He soon found out that these young people and children had fled from Synanon. Upon hearing their tragic stories of physical and verbal abuse, he set up a system to help the abused children escape. He would often try to get the children back to their parents. The punk squad would attack teens or anyone else who got close to the Synanon property. One teenager reportedly had their teeth knocked out. Chuck's second-in-command, Dan Garrett, would often be approached by the Imperial Guard with trespasses and thieves, and one time, Dan Garrett ordered the kidnapping of a man only to change it to a beating right there on the spot. At one stage, another rancher called Ron Eidson was run off the road in his car by a Synanon vehicle which then proceeded to pull over. Men emerged from the vehicle holding a gun to Alvin. He was pistol-whipped and knocked unconscious while shotguns were held on his watching family. Eidson would later sue Synanon. 
Chuck would tell the media that he wasn't in control of these people at Synanon and that they couldn't be controlled. He told people, quote, don't mess with Synanon, bombs could go off in the homes of critics. He told this to reporter Connie Chung. In 1977, Synanon accepted a woman in a pre-psychotic break. Her name was Frances and she had a history of psychosis. Upon noticing the signs of a potential break, her husband, Ed Wynne, told her that they would go to the clinic as soon as he had finished work. Frances decided to visit the Venice family clinic on her own and the clinic would then send her on to Synanon. When she arrived, she was gamed, had her personal belongings taken away, had her head shaved and whisked to another part of Synanon where her husband couldn't find her. When Ed requested to visit, they would not allow him to see her. Instead, they moved her to Tamales Bay without informing him and they told him that he couldn't see her for 90 days. The husband would then go on to hire Paul Morantz to help him save his wife. Paul had just finished a case against persons who kidnapped Skid Row alcoholics and kept them on Thorazine in a nursing home in order to build a state. With the blessing from a grand jury, Paul issued a report in 1978 which attacked Synanon, explaining and exposing its child abuse and how it was actually even profiting from it. He spoke of the weapons that were kept on the land and the threats to those who opposed Synanon. Paul even verbally attacked authorities for their lack of oversight. Authorities, however, would continue not to get involved. Whenever local media such as newspapers and radio stations would attempt to shine a light or expose Synanon, they were met with hefty legal action and silenced by expensive lawsuits. With local authorities refusing to investigate and the reports coming out from Paul and the grand jury, all of this caught the attention of Dave Mitchell, who ran a small weekly newspaper called the Port Reyes Light. Dave would continue to build up his knowledge and information on this movement. Newly appointed sheriff Lou Montanos would run report rejections on behalf of Synanon. Notably, Lou received help becoming nominated for sheriff by the people of Synanon. He also gave gun permits to Chuck and Chuck's second-in-command, Dan Garrett. It was later noted that $300,000 worth of firearms and ammunition was dotted around the Synanon community. It was also noted that $200,000 worth of these items were purchased from the same weapons store, and this caught the attention of the media. Over the course of its lifetime, Synanon would engage in legal battles against Paul Morantz, Synanon vs ABC, Synanon vs Time magazine, and eventually all of these would be Synanon's undoing. Journalists found access to internal documents of violence used against Synanon members, documents that included handwritten instructions telling members to physically harm others outside of Synanon, and then take responsibility for it when the authorities got involved, saying that it was nothing to do with Synanon. People that went to jail for Synanon were labelled as heroes. In 1978, NBC released a hard-hitting news segment on Synanon and not long after this was released, hundreds of threats against executives and the chairman of NBC started flooding in. Some of these threats included things like your actions place you in legal and physical peril and we are going to teach you a lesson. In March 1978, former member Tom Cardinu was severely beaten by members of the Imperial Marines after being accused of being a spy. He was tied to a post and brutally assaulted during his honeymoon. 
after he took his bride by the hand just to show her where he once lived in the Walker Creek Ranch. He was spotted by Synanon's own law enforcement, captured and beaten almost to death right there on the spot in front of his new wife. In June of 1978, Ernestine White, a grandmother of three children, tried to retrieve her grandchildren from Synanon when their mother had died within Synanon and the father had run away. Ernestine worked alongside attorney Paul Morantz, who gained a court order, giving the grandmother full custody. Upon arriving at Synanon, members refused to hand over the children, but Morantz had prepared for this, and before Synanon could react, 13 law enforcement vehicles and officers with their guns drawn ordered Synanon to stand down. The grandchildren were retrieved and successfully returned to their grandmother. In this same year, California Congressman Herschel Rosenthal, a strong supporter of Synanon, attached a rider to a bill that, if passed, would exempt Synanon from health licensing laws altogether, no matter who Synanon took in for medical treatment. Marin County Supervisors Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein did not want to take a public position against Synanon, as it was part of their constituent, and so they called Paul Morantz, who managed to stop the bill from going through at the very last second. The bill only failed to pass by one vote. In September, on the 21st, in 1978, the Imperial Marines attempt to take the life of ex-Synanon member Phil Ritter, who was trying to get his wife and child back. They beat Phil so severely with wooden mallets that he fell into a coma for a week, and part of the beating caused him to get fluid in his spine. This caused near-fatal spinal meningitis. Phil had gone to law enforcement to divulge some of the infractions taking place, including forced vasectomies and abortions. He explained how some of these procedures were forced after people were clubbed over the head. Eventually, Paul Morantz won a $300,000 court judgment against Synanon on the allegation that they had kidnapped, imprisoned and brainwashed someone pre-psychotic. Paul Morantz also went on to litigate constantly against Synanon. He managed to get some of the children reunited with family outside of Synanon. He talked to the media relentlessly and worked with politicians to take action against Synanon, especially exposing the hit squad, the Imperial Marines. It was also around this time that ex-president of Synanon, Jack Hurst, spoke out against Synanon, allowing more public coverage. However, he would later return home to find his front door open and his dog dead by hanging. The Imperial Marines had caught and caged rattlesnakes during their training and on October 10th, 1978, specific members of the Imperial Marines named Joe Musico and Lance Kenton, son of band leader Stan Kenton, under Chuck's orders placed a four-foot rattlesnake in the mailbox of Paul Morantz. The snake had been de-rattled so that it couldn't be heard within the mailbox and when Paul went out in the morning to gather his mail, the snake lunged out of the mailbox and attacked Paul, biting him on the hand. He screamed out in pain, and through panicked sounds, he called for an ambulance whilst also saying Synanon did it, it was Synanon. Paul would get treatment in time to save him from the rattlesnake bite, but he now suffers with arthritis and a rare blood disease that he says Synanon is responsible for. He said, quote, I want to go on record and say that this is the longest murder ever. Tapes would later be found of Chuck addressing Synanon civilians over the wire, bragging about beatings and the training of the Imperial Marines. He would say, quote, don't mess with Synanon. 
you can get killed, physically dead. Chuck could also be heard speaking about Paul, saying, We make the rules. I see nothing frightening about it. I am quite willing to break some lawyer's legs or his wife's legs and threaten to cut their child's arm off. I really do want an ear in a glass of alcohol on my desk. Once Paul Morantz had been named amongst the Imperial Marines of Synanon, it wasn't long until any adverse lawyer would come under their radar with the guard threatening to find out the names of their wives and children. Law enforcement could no longer ignore the cries and pleas of those against Synanon, and after the tragic events on November 18, 1978, when over 900 people would die in a mass murder-suicide under the leadership of cult leader Jim Jones in the once-apparent utopia Jonestown, law enforcement began looking at Synanon very closely. If you're unfamiliar with the catastrophic story of Jim Jones and the People's Temple, then you should go back to episode 2 of this podcast where I have looked into Jim Jones in some detail. After the attack on Paul Morantz, an arrest warrant was issued for Chuck. To avoid being arrested, Chuck fled to Europe with a few other members of Synanon. During this time, Chuck would return to drinking alcohol and law enforcement would find him in a drunken stupor and then they would arrest him for the attempted murder of Paul Morantz. Chuck would plead no contest to conspiracy to commit murder, agreeing as part of his probation to formally step down as chairman of Synanon. In the 1980s, the Department of Justice would hire Paul Morantz and Richard Offshee, a well-celebrated sociologist, to act as consultants in a case built to sue Synanon and remove their tax-free exemption status. This would end Synanon's reign of terror. Synanon would lose this legal battle due to evidence found within its grounds, with its own members making admissions of violence and brainwashing in Synanon's internal records. In 1991, unable to pay back the tax that it owed and the legal fees piling up against them, Synanon closed its doors. They wouldn't completely disappear in 1991. Instead, they opened a small private corporation in Lake Havasu, which planned to send Synanon money to the private corporation and then distribute it to the leaders of Synanon. But inevitably, all properties were eventually sold, confiscated or seized. And by 1992, Synanon was no more. The Point Reyes Light newspaper in Marin County, who continued to follow the story of Synanon in detail and keep an informative timeline, published Synanon's story, and because of this, it went on to win the 1979 Pulitzer Prize. Notably, the prize was won for the newspaper's account of Synanon when other papers were too scared to tackle it. If we look at Stephen Hassan's bite model, we can ascertain the level of control that this cult have o- has over its members. With behaviour control, leader promotes dependence and obedience. This is seen through the shunning and berating that people would receive during the game, which encouraged people to follow the rules to avoid this kind of beration. Modify behaviour with rewards and punishment. People who didn't stick to the rules or were seen as being adverse to Synanon, would have their hair cut. Dictate where and with whom you live. Members were asked to live in army-style barracks. Restrict or control sexuality. Members had to ask permission from elders to be allowed to date certain people. 
abortions and vasectomies then became enforced. Control clothing and hairstyle. All heads become shaved and dungarees became the universal uniform of synanon. Regulate what you eat and drink and how much. Sugar and refined grains became banned and smoking became banned too. Deprive you of seven to nine hours sleep. Games and the trip could last hours and hours, sometimes even days, with participants being forced to stay awake. Restrict leisure time and activity. Chuck introduced the 24-hour workday where half the people worked in the day with no time for leisure and half the people worked in the night, meaning that those people needed to spend the daytime sleeping before their 12-hour shift. With information control, forbid you from speaking to co-members or critics. Conversations with people outside of Synanon became forbidden. Generate and use propaganda extensively. Chuck would use the wire to encourage violence against those who were adverse to Synanon. Use information gained in confession sessions. People in the trip and those who lived at Synanon were encouraged to keep notes and journals of experiences which were later used to force non-conformers into getting fully on board or risk having their secrets confessed publicly. With fort control, change your identity, possibly your name. People arriving at Synanon had their clothes and personal possessions confiscated, their hair shaved and they were stripped of the old and given a uniform to fit in with the rest of Synanon. Use loaded language and cliches to stop complex thought. Chuck was actually quoted saying, do not try to reason as to what Synanon asks they do, as thinking got them there. Just trust what they are told and act as if it was right. He called this the act as if. He also said freedom to think to a dope addict was like a gun to a baby. Induce hypnotic or trance states. Chuck used LSD on new members to encourage full indoctrination. With emotional control, promote feelings of guilt and shame. The game, its entire purpose, seems to be aimed towards gaining these two feelings from participants. Shun you if you disobey orders. The game, the punk squad and the imperial military. These were all put in place to shun Synanon members if they stepped out of line. From this, the bite model will provide a score which can determine the level of control the group is using. I believe that if this cult would have continued to operate without intervention, it could have ended more tragically than it did. Therefore, the score for this cult and the control it had over its members is 25 to 35, severe and could lead to lethal or dangerous outcomes. Chuck died in 1997, a few weeks shy of his 84th birthday. From humble beginnings as a drunken man, he stumbled from AA to creating Synanon 1, a place for drug addicts, to Synanon 2, a utopian and alternative community, to Synanon 3, where violence was allowed, where many people were harmed, and he encouraged, where he could, cult behaviour, and a dangerous man truly manifested. Ironically, Chuck would be found drunk at the end of the story anyway. And this is where we leave today's episode. But this sets us up to discuss the Charles E. Dederick University, or SEDU, the start of the troubled teens industry that would lead to physical, verbal, sexual abuse, suicide, and even missing children who have still never been found to this day. If you are in a cult, or know someone who might be, then please follow the link in the description for advice and support. If you would like to get in touch, 
you can do so by emailing me at cultvaultpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me at cultvaultpod on Twitter and Instagram. If you like this content, then please head over to my Patreon to see the perks available for any support people can offer. Patreon forward slash the cult vault. Thank you, listeners. I'm your speaker, Casey, and this has been another episode of The Cult Vault. <laughs>